0: Hey, welcome to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder.
1: I'm Dan Schwester.
0: And today we have the head of the International Association of EMS Chiefs, Dan Girard is joining us again. Hey, Dan.
1: Hey, how's it going, gentlemen?
0: Doing well, doing well. Uh, We wanted to talk to you today because recently, I I guess in August, uh, the Chiefs put out a statement on whole blood and the the data is starting to kind of reflect that the use of whole blood is better um, than the the previous uh, available options. Dan and I have a couple of stickers and patches that say whole blood over pasta water, that whole thing we, we talked about uh, with Andrew Fisher months ago. But this, and we're, we want to jump right into it because the statement was pretty, it was very strongly worded, which I think is very important. So I wanted to get, you know, introduce the listeners to what the statement was, what the data is, and where you guys were going with your position statement.
2: Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. So when we initially came out with the statement, um, we had worked previously with Dr. Uh, John Holcomb, and for those who don't uh, know Dr. Holcomb, he's a renowned trauma surgeon. Um, you know, devoted his career to the U.S. military resuscitation of uh, of, of uh, our combat uh, our combat soldiers, Marines, sailors, and you know, this was in the forefront of his transition back into the civilian sector. Um, There's a book that's out. It's called Zero Trauma Deaths, and it's put out by the uh, National Academy of Sciences. And it talked about How we can do things better, what we were, what we were doing, what we weren't doing, how to leverage the system better in order to facilitate resuscitation. And so when uh, Dr. Holcomb came uh, out of the, uh, Came out of the service, he was working with um, other members of the community of, of the civilian community. Uh, Dr. John Kramer, who had just retired as the EMS director for NHTSA EMS, and Dr. Kramer, I, I don't think a lot of people realized was was an emergency medicine physician. Actually, got a start as an EMT up in Michigan, like back in the seventies, you know, if you can wow. appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And they, you know, they were pushing, you know, and they, you know, they were gathering the science that existed at that time. And, you know, they were really trying to push this forward. Uh, the military, you know, looked at trying to get whole blood, um, Back in during the uh, initial stages of the Afghanistan War, you know the the whole thing was you know how can we give this to our forward combat troops, people that are out on patrol, etc., so that they can institute blood in the field, and they were using a uh, a different product instead, um, freeze dried plasma, which uh, we actually invented, but. Uh, sometime after the Korean War, we stopped using, um, the Germans, the French, and the Israelis really did a great job with advancing the technology and making a more robust product. And, uh, we picked it back up in, in the Gulf War. But realistically, you know, they wanted to give like every medic on the ground a unit of blood. You know, it's just how do, you know, how do you keep a temperature control? And, uh, you know, and this is an idea. That has been bandied about since the 1960s. You know, if we could get blood to people in the field, but it was always the technology issue. You know, you, you would, you know, you would need a, essentially a good humor truck to go along with the ambulance on every emergency response. And so we saw this as a critical issue. There were other places around the country that had implemented this. Now I will tell you that San Antonio fire department when they first uh, started their blood program, they had a little bit of a leg up on everybody because they have Lackland Air Force Base there, which is a level, it's the only military level one trauma center in the United States. And they take people from outside the community. It's just not, you know, it's not only military folk that go there. So anybody can go, anybody can be transported to Lackland. And, they were able to leverage their expertise advances in technology and it was the right things at the right time and once they started pr- uh, proving a uh, proof of concept and more docs started to transition out of the field and we started to see more of these blood programs popping up around the United States it's just the, it was just the way to go you know we you know we had the support you know, we had to support this. This is the next thing. This is like twelve leads were like um like back in the nineties, right? So Ed, I'm sorry, I'm not hearing it.
0: Ed, you got on mute three and two. And certainly as time goes on, you know, new medicine isn't really new at all, right? We always hear about, you know, oh, well, we've been doing this for 30 years and it's worked in our system, but, oh, well, you know, it didn't work. It worked in California. It didn't work in New York or whatever. The, the statement that the the chiefs have made of saying, like, this is the standard of care now. This is what we should do. One of the things that I, I just want to talk to you real quick before we delve into more of the details about it is what's what's your response to the difficulty of procurement? And then to storage, or is that something that people just kind of complain about? But there's already a a known solution.
2: There there are known there are known solutions to that. Um, there are, I think the I think the issue is on a local level what is going to be accepted because every blood bank might have their own particular brand or product or process that they want utilized. And I think that as we begin to flesh this out, uh I spoke with a vendor. Uh I was at I spoke at EMS World. And I spoke with a vendor and I said, "Look, they said, "Where do we need to be?" And I said, "This is where you need to be. You know, you need to come up with a comprehensive blood plan so that if an EMS agency in rural Wyoming or the Cleveland Department of EMS or the Miami Beach Fire Department wants to institute blood. You have the technology for storage in the ambulance, for storage in the station. You have all those requisite parts that need to go together. I I mean, I kind of envy the guys in New Jersey a little bit because, uh, in hospital based systems, this might be a lot easier. And especially when you talk about places like Jersey City, Nork, Patterson, where they have trauma centers, where the paramedic units are hospital based, it'll be easier for them to figure out and come up with the solution. But, you know, the, you know, the templates that are being developed, uh, across the United States, as I said, San Antonio Fire, another great guy is Peter Antevi who's down in, in Miami Beach, emergency medicine doc, medical director for the fire department. I think he's got like five or six departments that he's working with, and he's the medical director that they're right. doing this with. And Peter is such a great, great person. Like, he'll give you, you know, he'll give you the shirt off his back.
0: He really is. He's, he's been on the show a couple times. We're, we're big fans is.
2: Yeah, he's brilliant. He, he is abs- absolutely, absolutely. So, um, you know, the, you know, the, those parts and those, you know, those logistical pieces are there. A lot of this has to do with the will of the, you know, organizational leadership. Um, my question always is not if I'm going to do something, how, how do I make this happen? And I think that your more progressive leaders kind of go in that direction.
0: And, and we've, we've had conversations previously where the the lack of will in leadership or in progression is is really the, the nidus for this show. Um, the I, I think we're naturally kind of resistant to change. And, you know, it, it, there's always someone who will say like, well, the data just isn't extant enough for me to start changing practice or it's too expensive or it's whatever. One of the things that I thought was important in, in the statement that you all made was, listen, all of that put aside, like, this is what we have to do. So now that we know that we have to do it, it's kind of like the first step to, you know, to solving a problem is admitting that there is one. Yeah. Right. So, so putting out a statement like that, like, listen, this is strongly worded. This is, you know, no nonsense. It's like, this is what we have to do. Um, And certainly in areas where you have like, you know, serious penetrating traumas, like you like you mentioned Jersey city and Newark where, you know, filling these people with lactated ringers which we've been doing for 40 years just isn't fixing them and it, it's and and Dan you and I have talked about this before it, it's interesting that the conversation is almost like well if you're losing blood a layperson would say well we probably have to give them blood but it feels like in medicine we're like no 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 see if they lose blood what we can do is we can take all of these different fractured parts and put them all together and if you like, if you like, there's like, it's like a Rube Goldberg machine. And then over here is just a bag of blood.
2: Sure. And you, we really have to conceptualize this in a matter of, we can't make this about ego or individual departments. If we need to regionalize services in for, for administration of blood, because, you know, there, you I'm going to be perfectly honest, there's going to be a small department in Idaho that if they look at it, you know, everybody's volunteer. Some guy is coming in and he runs the local hardware store. and But, you know, he's the elected chief for the organization. Right. Uh Having a full-time blood product manager isn't going to happen. And so, you know, we really have to think About how we're going to partner with other people and then having those other organizations, blood banks and hospitals, how they're going to partner with us to ensure, uh, to ensure success. I think back, I, you know, when you read the book, the paramedics, or if you ever had the opportunity to talk to Jim Page, he talks about how they had these, uh, bake sales. To start paramedic units because the defibrillator, you know, was like forty pounds. In you know, the right. telemetry unit was like another twenty-five or thirty pounds. It was mm-hmm. these big pieces of technology that they couldn't afford, and then the training that they had. You know, I mean, you couldn't do this today. Guys volunteered to go to the training. They worked for a paid department. They volunteered to go to the training. So all the department had to do was pay for their training, find the money to pay for their, you know, pay for the training. That wouldn't happen today.
0: No, and I, I think that again, it's a missed opportunity for organizations to not keep their staff as up to date on the, the current medicine as they as they possibly can. So that the, the background and logistics uh, we, we've talked about, let's go in a little bit to the physiology of this. I, simply put, we've talked about this a couple of times. If you're losing blood, lactated ringers and saline is just not going to resuscitate you. Um, but go, go It's into, actually going to hurt you
1: it's down the make road. You. Right, exactly. Oh, so let's, I, absolutely.
2: They don't stay in the vascular spaces long. And normal saline, you know, I, I'll give r- lactated ringers a little bit more props than normal saline. Ringers will stay in the vascular space a little bit longer, but saline just pours out of you and increases your acidosis. Like, why would you want to give it? You know, but we have places around the country that are given these fluids, you know, ad hominem. Well, Well, even even
1: even ATLS uh, has changed their their tune, so to speak. It used to be they wanted like two liters of crystalloid before considering blood. Now now they've changed that and they're starting to think about, you know, you can give some crystalloid, but if you're giving crystalloid, you should be thinking about blood or blood products. Um, and that that was a STEM change. Um, but I don't know that it's it's still trickling down. Um, but the the idea of you know blood products as opposed to crystalloid is, is the science is there. I mean, uh we've got twenty years of studies coming out of the military that show the benefits. Um, we know that you know even and even whole blood is better uh, than component therapy. Oh,
2: absolutely, absolutely. And the other thing that we also need to consider is that early initiation of blood we know reduces uh, ICU time and improves surgical outcomes. Um, we have less end organ damage that occurs. And I don't think the thing that... So we know that there are studies that absolutely prove the effectiveness. I think the real proof is going to come when we have... So many organizations that are doing this, and then we start to do the studies and we look at length of stay, morbidity, and mortality, and we start to do those comparisons on outcomes. Um, now, we absolutely know that it works, but then once we have that those numbers, we'll have a better appreciation, and we'll be scratching our heads. We'll be saying to ourselves, like, why didn't we do this sooner?
0: Well, and like I like I said earlier, it's it's fascinating to me whenever we have this whenever we run into these kinds of problems where it's the the answer seems very obvious. And again, like if you're losing blood, it it seems to stand to reason that the thing you would need is blood. And it, looking back, you know, over the past 15, 20 years, where it was like, oh well, we have component therapy; we can give FFP or we can give plasma, you know, whatever. And even even then, you know, it's like, well, okay, well, why are you giving a unit of packed cells when you could just you could just give blood. Like it, it's it feels like you're it, like I said, it feels like taking extra steps to to get to an, an easier result. Um so it, it always felt very counterproductive to me.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I and I we see this reticence in other parts of medicine when uh you know when new therapies and new ideas come in. Uh, you know, we, you know, we kind of saw this. There was a lot of hesitance. I don't know if you remember when uh, thrombolytics were first being given in the hospital. And there was this whole talk about paramedics giving thrombolytics in the field. And there were so many of us within the profession that were throwing our hands up and saying, no, you can't do this. And then there were these nascent little programs across the United States that started to do it. They would go through the checklist, you know, they would administer thrombolytics and they saw these really large improvements in outcomes reduced lengths of stay uh you know just better outcomes of role and then angioplasty became the thing we forgot about (laughs) problem right so but but it's the same sort of thing you know like we kind of go through these cycles you know it's almost predictable you know and as a matter of fact if we you know, like if we were off the air, we could probably point to the people that would be champions and we probably could point to the people that would be the name. Oh, absolutely. You know, for anything. that. Oh, we,
0: oh we, we know those people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but like it's it's interesting. And again, like we're, we're all going down to this conference this week and, you know, it, it's it feels like every year there's like a very it item. Right. Like, you know, whatever, seven, 10 years ago, they're like, oh, did you hear we're, we're bringing mass trousers back like that kind of stuff? <laughs> or, you know, like oh, we figured out a new way to use this medication, you know, or, um, you know, epinephrine doesn't work except when it does. But we shouldn't stop using it. But we should like it's every year there's like a new topic. So but I, I feel like and, and this is just an anecdote. I feel like we've we've heard whole blood rolling out to trucks for years and it's always been, well, wait you know, we haven't gotten approval from whatever NAEMSP, or we haven't gotten approval from whatever, you know, NAMT, like professional organizations haven't given their sign off on it. And it, it to me, it always felt kind of like kicking the can down the road, um, which is why I, I feel like a, a forceful statement, like, no, we're doing this. And like, it's, it's kind of like, all right, we can do away with all the pretense. This is the standard. This is what we should do. If you're not doing it, you're behind the times. Kind of get with it. So from from that position, how do we, it's difficult to encourage change, but what kind of steps can you take? If you're just in an organization and you're like, listen, I, I understand that whole blood is the new thing now. How do you bring that to management? How do you bring that to leadership? How does someone start that conversation with the team to try and bring them up to the current data?
2: Well, one of the things that one of the things I want to point out to you, um, Dr. Uh, Kramer and Dr. Holcomb started this pre-hospital blood transfusion initiative coalition. And it brings, you know, it's IAEMSC, it's NAEMT, it's NAEMSP. It's like all the alphabet organizations bringing them together and everybody is on the same page moving forward. So in regards to policy process, you know, there are, you know, there is a large group of people that want to advance this and move it forward. Uh, On a local level, you know, if I was, you know, still working in the field in New Jersey, I would start gathering my, I would start gathering my articles. I would start, you know, if you look at my, uh, if you look at our position statement, you know, we have some practical example, you know, like we mentioned Delaware and, you know, and Peter Antevi, there's a bunch of stuff you could just pull, you know, every day you could just pull down line from Peter, you know, of, of the successes that they're having. And then the clinical articles that exist. And then, you know, like, Like I said, the National Academy of Sciences book is a free download. It's a PDF. If you want the hardcover, you have to pay for it. But it's, you know, zero, uh, you know, a national trauma care system. And you know, they talk about you know what some of the things that we have to do to advance the system of care. And the most important thing is to find the champion, either within your organization or within your organization's milieu. So maybe you, um, uh, you know, maybe you don't have a strong trauma doctor within your system, but maybe within another system, there is a doc that you can find. I thought one of the goofiest things in the entire world, um, I had a part-time job. I used to work up at uh, Saint Barnabas Medical Center before it was like this huge conglomerate, right? It was like just <laughs> one hospital.
0: Yes, Saint Barnabas. Yep.
2: And and Doctor Nance, who was the um, he was the editor in chief of the Journal of Trauma, was. You know, at Barnabas, he was a practicing doc at Barnabas. Now he had worked at other trauma centers and stuff like that, but Barnabas was not a trauma center, right? And he was the editor. But if you went to him and you said, you know, we, you know, we need to be doing this, he would be right on top of it. He was right there. So identifying those, you know, identifying those champions within your organization and even outside your organization, uh, make friends with the people in the blood bank. How can we do this? This is, you know, is this possible here? You know, San Antonio will share their policies, processes. They'll give you their equipment list. We talked about Peter Antevi. There's a bunch of places, you know, around the United States that are doing this that will gladly share the things that they, uh, you know, that they've compiled over a period of time. And so if you kind of, you know, it's it's one of those sort of things. I learned this a long time ago. Um, I was uh there was a guy, Barry Straub, he was the chief medical officer for uh the Centers for Medicare Services. And everybody was going to him as, you know, like the AAA and everybody was like, Give me money, give me money, give me more money, give me more money. And we went to him and we said to him, we said, This is the problem. And he kind of like looked at us and he was waiting for us to say, give us money. And we said to him and said, This is how you solved it. And then he kind of like sat down for a second and he looked at us. So then he invited us down to do a presentation um, at Health and Human Services, and they've got like all these like big wigs, like you know assistant secretaries and undersecretaries and all this other stuff. And when we got done with the presentation, it was me, Larry Tan, who was in Delaware, and Ben Pasadlo, who's up in Massachusetts. When we got done with the presentation down there, they turned around and said to us, "They said we are going to include EMS in innovations and in healthcare grants because." We, you know, we solved the problem for them and they saw the value. And that's the same. And the point of that story is if you, you know, if you go with all the information, if you go with a path forward, if you have like, this is the equipment we would need at that point, like if I'm the boss of the organization, my ability to say no kind of gets reduced.
0: Right. And no one wants to do, and especially in leadership, no one wants to do any extra work on top of the workload they already have. So if you come, and it, this has been a topic on the show previously, but if you come in and you're like, here's a problem and I think I've fixed it, let, let's do that. I think a lot of leadership is going to be uh, you know, more agreeable to the idea. Um, I want to dovetail into ethics real quick before we get out of here. Um, the World Health Organization defines uh, equal equal access to life-saving intervention as a human right um, which is something that's mentioned in the position statement as well so I, I guess in in this type of setting um, are there are there ethical concerns that we have to get through in order to start administering whole blood like the, I, again the, the roadblocks thing is there an issue with low tide or oh whole blood um, or like you know getting blood from blood banks are there any type of ethical issues that they might run into or is the World Health Organization uh, defining this equal access thing? Is that kind of an inroad to making a blood program more popular?
2: Well, in regards to you know when you when you think about this, you're going to be drawing down on blood from blood banks and we all we hear about the shortages all the time and you know there will be a call on the news that they're going to have a blood drive and that they desperately need blood and they're trying to bring people um, into the system and so the first thing I think that we need to do as ethical stewards and something that we don't do well but that this is probably an opportunity for us now to step up and do better is community engagement. And either start a blood bank as a satellite of the local blood bank, have those community blood drives. Because think about it, our biggest issue is the fact that the community really doesn't understand a lot of what we do and how the system works. Right. And this is another opportunity for us that we can create, that we can control, and that we can get the you know we can get the message out. Um, I talked to Uwe Reinhardt. I, I wrote an article, I don't know, like like thirty years ago about the Clinton Healthcare Initiative. And I pick up the phone and I called Huey Reinhardt at Princeton, and he like he answered the phone. Right, he was the guy who wrote this. He's like one of the most famous healthcare economists mm-hmm. in the world. And I talked to him for like a couple of hours and at one point he said to me, he goes, well, you know, the ambulance he goes paying for the ambulance isn't a big deal he goes it's a vol- it's volunteer right because he was at princeton you know right. uh, he was a, so he yeah. was, like all the ambulances were volunteer and that was like a whole different discussion but here was a guy he was the foremost health economist in the world and he thought it was free you know mm-hmm. so now this is our opportunity to meet with the people that we serve every day so that would be the first thing i would say is that community engagement um you know, helping to do those things in order for us to get blood. The people that we overwhelmingly take care of are socially and economically disenfranchised members of society.
0: I think that's a really interesting point is is making it a a community. I don't want to say a community problem, but a, a community issue where the problem, it's not so much like, oh, the problem is that the hospital and the medic units don't have blood. The problem is that the community of this town doesn't have that available to them. I think that's a really interesting framing
1: and and just to point out um some of these programs that have adopted whole blood uh i i i want to say it's san antonio in their region they've identified Donors who are low tighter O and they actually like, they make a big deal over them. They're like heroes. They, they encourage donation and they, they're collecting from the community. They're investing the community in the project. Um, I thought that was really interesting in some of the, the, the reading I've done on whole blood. Um, and if it's not San San Antonio, I, I apologize.
0: No, absolutely. And this is a a hugely important topic. And the, the, the position statement is one of the the better ones that I've read. It's very, I don't want to say simply written. It's very obviously written where we've established this problem. Now it's time that we fix it. Dan Gerard, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to talk about Whole Blood getting out into the community. We'll see you down in Atlantic City. And for the overrun, I'm Ed Bowder. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you guys
1: soon.